From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In Colorado and throughout the Southwest, ancient rock arts, both petroglyphs and pictographs, is everywhere. We are literally surrounded by it. Some rock art, says explorer and author Craig Childs, was meant to track happenings in the heavens. Think about being out here a thousand years ago, where it's nothing but sky. Your life is under the sky. So you're, you know, the day that Mars goes into retrograde motion, you see it. You watch everything change. So you're going to record it on the ground. And to the descendants of those who made this art, it is alive. These are his ancestors speaking through rock. So these are, in essence, people. He looks at rock art and as if it is breathing. We read Child's new book, Tracing Time, for Turn the Page. You're about to step out the door. You've got your keys, your wallet, and CPR. If you have your phone with you, we're just a tap away. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner in Grand Junction, where we're going to spend the next hour feeling a sense of awe. Awe at the rock art, the ancient communication that blankets the canyons, cliffs, and caves of the Colorado Plateau. Our guest is the explorer and nature writer Craig Childs. We chose his new book, Tracing Time, for our reading circle, Turn the Page. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Other readers are gathered for this awesome experience on the campus of Colorado Mesa University. And let's welcome Craig Childs. This rock art dates back one to 2,000 years. Depictions of birds and butterflies, bears and bighorn sheep, dances and hunts, eyes and handprints. Craig, just how prevalent are petroglyphs and pictographs on the 250,000 square miles of the Colorado Plateau? In a way, they're everywhere. I mean, from right here in Grand Junction, I think about what's, what's around us. And there's rock art up in the, the monument above us. There's rock art in the book cliffs, uh, rock art down the, the plateau to the south. There, Almost every major drainage has something in it, and sometimes it's just crowded with imagery. So you may not know where all the images are, but, but after a while you start to pick up on how much is actually out there, and we are literally surrounded by it. You have to slow down enough to see it. I mean, you write that highways and train tracks are often set along rock art corridors. How is that? Oh yeah, because we're moving in the same ways that people have always moved. You know, where we put our highways is usually the gap from one region to another. And, you know, I was at a site not long ago right off a highway in northern New Mexico and and you have to jump over the, the guardrail. There's no place to park. You, well, this you, sounds safe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're, you've got cars flying by you, but then up, up in the cliffs, looking down at the cars are hundreds of images pecked into the rock that are centuries to thousand years old, and it's because these same routes are the ones that we use over and over, and we, we think we're different now. Uh-huh. 
we're not. We, we move in the same ways, even though we're moving in cars. So the rock art is, is there along these ways. Is any part of you in this interview, or as you are writing this book, afraid to talk about the rock art, lest it be vandalized or disrespected? You know, I think of the people who never want their favorite places to be yeah. told on the radio because they're afraid they'd be spoiled. Yeah, oh, all of me was afraid of that. Uh, and yet you wrote the book. Well, <laughs> I, it, it's, it's kind of, as I'm writing it, I'm thinking, okay, how sensitive is this place? How, how visible is it? I often don't say what state I'm in. I'm somewhere mm -hmm. in the four corners, mm -hmm. and I don't say I'm in New Mexico or Arizona or Colorado necessarily because it's not so much about going to that one place. It's more knowing what is out here in the bigger scope. But yeah, I, I was very careful about writing locations because it's not about the location. It's just about the context. <laughs> I mean, there, there are sites all around us and there are some you can go see publicly. And then once you start learning, it's more that you learn what rock faces to pay attention to, what kind of terrain you're in, and then you start picking up bits and pieces. Then you see uh, an image on the wall and go, okay, I'm in the right spot. You develop an eye for this and, yeah. a, and a spidey sense about it. Yeah. Uh, why don't we have you read a short passage from the introduction to Tracing Time, Craig Childs. In Southwest Colorado, I live in a nest of petroglyphs and pictographs extending hundreds of miles around me. Taking shelter from the sun or rain below an undercut boulder or rock overhang, I find painted people with upstretched arms, rows of spirit figures, zigzag designs climbing a wall onto the ceiling. There are spidering heads and insect people, scenes of hunting and warfare, armed figures holding up human scalps, and women squatting in childbirth. Histories are written here, footprints, handprints, bows and arrows, adeladles, spears, shields. Flute players are in rows, some on their backs playing upward, some seated, some moving in processions, their penises raised like flags. I'm not offering a guidebook to places, but a guidebook to context, meaning, and ways of seeing. There are no maps or directions in this book. Exact locations are not deemed important. Particular sites you may already know or you'll be a hundred canyons off. Some are glaringly obvious right above the highway and others take days on foot to reach, sometimes with the aid of rope. Mm. Rock art is a reminder of the indigenous people who came before us and the indigenous people of today. Will you tell us about Jim Enote and how he thinks about these images? Yeah, Jim is a, a Zuni farmer, scholar, uh, living in, in Zuni in northern New Mexico. And we spent a while talking about rock art, going back and forth. Um, and and he, you know, we have different ways of seeing it because I, I look at rock art and I see, oh, this is ancient indigenous ancestry here. And when he looks at it, he says, this is my identity. This is family. And so I tend to come from, from a side that's seeing it as more exotic, more, oh, this isn't my language. These aren't my histories. 
And he's looking at it saying, this, these are the bloodlines that I belong to. These are the ceremonies that my families came out of. And, and I think there are many different ways of seeing rock art. And his way is, is closer to it, mm. where, where he's, he said that he, when he sees rock art, he says, hello, good morning, or good afternoon. He, and he told me that when he's with archaeologists, he tends to kind of say it under his breath because he's embarrassed to be seen talking to rock art, but he knows that the rock art is, these are his ancestors speaking through rock. So these are, in essence, people. And he looks at rock art and as if it is breathing. He also contemplates when he sees rock art, who might be buried nearby. Yeah, yeah. Because you're, you know, think about thousands of years, uh, tens of thousands of years of people here, so many bones in the ground, so much blood in the ground that the ground itself is part of this ancestry. It is part of the genetic lineage. We've used the term petroglyphs and pictographs. What's the difference? Petroglyphs are pecked into the rock or scratched into the rock so you're actually breaking the surface of the rock. Mm -hmm. and. Here in the desert, you get this patina on the rock surface. It's dark, often black. And then when you cut into it or peck into it, the surface is almost white underneath. So the petroglyphs, when they were fresh, they would have glowed. They would have been like neon. Where pictographs are painted, so they're color-based. White, red, blue, green, yellow. They, They stand out in a whole different way. Often a mineral pigment mixed with blood or egg yolk, some kind of protein to bind it to the wall. Blood or egg yolk? Whose blood? Yeah, whose blood? <laughs> well, I'm always imagining, being, being a writer, that uh, it was the artist's blood. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a bloodletting sometimes making art. I yeah, think. it's a self-portrait on the wall. <laughs> I think what's remarkable is that the pigments survive. I would expect an etching to survive, but the notion that the pigment has lasted 500, 1,000, 2,000 years is remarkable. Baking in the sun. Yeah, and some of these pigments are uh, probably over 4,000 years old, Uh, and, and they're often in sheltered areas where, so you have an alcove and it's painted in the back, uh, Petroglyphs can be more out in the open. I've seen petroglyphs on top of boulders that are facing the sky. And so they're just getting rain down on and the sun is landing on them. The wind is blowing through them. Where, whereas the petroglyphs tend to be more intimate. You, know, you go back into a, a sheltered cave and there are 200 handprints painted on the walls. And they're only there because the wind doesn't blow back there. Mm. But I've seen pictographs that, that if you touch them with your finger or with a pen, they would fall off the, the rock. You know, and this so is why fragile. you were concerned about these right. places. Right, because mm-hmm. if you start saying, hey, here's this spot with these rare pictographs, I, people are, I think overall, people are very careful, but you want to touch them, and that's where you, know, you leave your oils on the rock, or you, you know, after 15, 20, 100 people touching it, it disappears and so that's why I'm I'm really careful because I these have been here for thousands of years and they could be gone in an instant what image pun intended is most etched in your mind (laughs) well right now I just I was uh, 
backpacking a couple weeks ago, not too far from here, and in some deep, hard country. Uh, we, we were moving all day with packs, and we made a mile, uh, just climbing and cracks and roots, and we got into an alcove. And, you know, I've seen spectacular, huge panels that just are, are mind-boggling, but this was just one figure painted, a human-like figure that I would date back to uh, probably 2,000 years old. Okay. One figure in the back of an alcove. And sometimes those are the ones that really etch on my mind are, are not that, I mean, there are some beautiful thousand figure panels, but just one in the middle of nowhere where you look around and you say, wow, I don't think anybody's been in here for decades, if not centuries. And here is this one mark in the back. It makes it so easy to start imagining who did it. Yeah. What moment in time, what yeah. was going on in their life? Yeah. At that moment. And how did they relate to the people around them? Why were they in this one isolated canyon? Where are they traveling from? Where are they going to? Is this their home? Is this hunting grounds in the summer? Is this a winter refuge? And you start asking those questions because as soon as you see that, that marking, you go, okay, this is artistry. This is humans. And this is a long time ago. Mm. And humans are not that different. We all have families and lives and this person had all of that. Who was this? Some rock art conjures up sound for you. Hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, I, I carry this flute around sometimes to play in a canyon and listen for the sound to come back because often rock art is acoustic. It's in a place where there's sound echoing from, from the, the alcove. So you can, you can walk around clapping and listening and going, okay, that's, that sound's coming from over there, and you'll follow it, and there might be rock art there. Mm. There was a, a site where a little creek was flowing through a canyon bottom, and I'm sure a lot of you have had this happen out in the desert with all the cliffs, is you hear the creek coming from somewhere way up above you because it's echoing up there. Uh. And I climbed up and entered this alcove, and you could see the the place in the rock where it sounded like water is coming out of the rock and there are petroglyphs all over right there. And so when you see that, you go, oh, I, I know you guys were, were following the sound and going, this is where water emerges from rock. A kind of triangulation. Yeah. yeah. And I think now we could say, oh, those are sound waves that are bouncing back. We know the, the scientific dynamics of sound. But I want to strip that away and say, maybe, what if you don't know these dynamics? What if you hear water coming from rock and that's where you put your markings? So it's very acoustic. Well, and so you bring your flute and sometimes the art is of flute players. Right. <laughs> and like just to connect you even more to these folks who really aren't that different from us. I, I used to today. play trombone. <laughs> <laughs> It's harder to carry around in the back country. Yeah, I, think. I didn't. I I didn't do it to match the rock art, but uh, you know, trombone doesn't work out there, and and, uh, <laughs> and so I started carrying flute. And in fact, Craig Childs, author of Tracing Time, brought his flute and did an impromptu performance for us.
when we come back, how rock art connects us to the heavens. This is Turn the Page with Colorado Matters from CPR News. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver, Aurora, Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, Boulder, Minus Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. So much of the world reveals itself to us if we slow down and look around. That is certainly the case for ancient rock art, which surrounds us in the Southwest. Let's get back to my conversation with author Craig Childs, who lives in Norwood, Colorado. We chose his new book, Tracing Time, for our reading series, Turn the Page. Childs and I spoke on a stage in Grand Junction. Let's talk for a bit about astronomical rock art. Um, that some of this imagery works as a sundial, for instance. Um, you make some of these sorts of markings yourself, in fact, even today. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I, I, um... Let's talk about your vandalism of a hotel room, <laughs> yeah, Craig. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, there was a, a room that I was staying in, and uh, the, the sun came through the little peephole on the door, and it cast this circle of light, a tiny circle of light on the wall, and so I got up on the bed and I drew a little spiral into the circle <laughs> with the date next to it, thinking that, uh, and it's small enough that I think nobody would notice, but at the right time, can you imagine being in that room and going, huh, I wonder what that means. And then the light comes through the people <laughs> and lands on the spiral and they say, my God, this was meant to be, which, <laughs> which it was. Which it was. <laughs> I, I think we, we pay attention in our house to where the sun comes through at different times of year, the, that it makes that triangle on the floor in September or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I think we've all been doing that. I mean, when we sat down in here at the beginning... Uh, this theater on the Colorado Mesa University campus has... Are these clear stories, clear stories of light? Yeah. And the sun was coming through that one little crack right into my eyeballs and blinding me, <laughs> but it was, it, you're lining yourself up. You're finding a place on the landscape where you can be there at the time. And rock art does that, though it might be overstated how much it does that. It's hard to tell. Uh, there are a lot of sites that are definitely tied to, to the sun rising at, at summer solstice and, and the sunrise comes through a crack and forms a shape on top of a rock art panel, you can see there's so many panels that are lined up mm-hmm. that these are basically calendars. And if you went back and asked them what they were for, you probably would have gotten a lot of different answers that, oh, it's for planting or it's for ceremony or it's just, somebody would look at that and say, I just like knowing that the year keeps coming back, that the seasons keep turning, that mm. we're not lost out here. That there's something familiar and mooring. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all look for that. I think especially now, yeah. the pandemic was so unmooring that anything that provides ritual is comfort. Yeah, and so you look at where the sun is setting every day. 
Look at the shadows and how they shift and move and think about being out here a thousand years ago where it's nothing but sky. Your life is under the sky. So you're, you know, the day that Mars goes into retrograde motion, you see it. <laughs> you watch everything change. So you're going to record it on the ground. You write about a pictograph in New Mexico's Chaco Canyon that documents a rather fantastic global event. Was it an asteroid? No, it was a supernova. A supernova. Strange things in the sky get written down. And they get written down in different places around the globe. Yeah. So that you have some sense that there was a phenomenon in the sky that many continents might have seen. Yeah, a supernova in 1054 AD that lasted for years and was as bright as the moon, full moon. There are records of it. The Chinese kept very accurate records of the day and the placement. And and you see it around the southwest, too. You see in Chaco, it's it's a starburst with a crescent moon and a handprint. And they're on the ceiling. So you're looking up and seeing these above you, huh. which to me is, is looking at the sky. It dates back to that, that same period. And that must have been huge to see a, a supernova. I mean, right now, I think it would freak us out. Oh, yeah. I think it would change the course of civilization if it happened today. And think about it happening, happening in 1054, what that would mean to have. It was, it was blood red. So to have this bright red light in the sky all of a sudden. And it endured? Yeah, it lasted for years. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> so just imagine going out at night and everything's bathed red. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not sure how we do with it right now, to tell you the truth. What does it mean to be a white guy writing a book about ancient indigenous rock art? Like, did you ever question whether this was your story to tell? Yeah, it's a good question because it's something that was on my mind the whole time. I don't know if I would have written this book because I had so many questions stopping me from that. Hmm. Because I I would look at it and go, well, this isn't my story. It's my story in that I'm involved with it and I'm here now while these images are all around me. But these, these images belong to people who trace their bloodlines back thousands of years here, and I trace, you know, centuries at most. Mm. And, but then I, ha- I have to step back and say, okay, I, I'm a, I write about place. And so I write about wind and water and civilizations and geology, and, and to not write about rock art seemed like a, a blank space. It's taken me a while to write about rock art. It's a, it's a hard thing to write about. It's so amorphous. It's, there's so many stories embedded in it that you and I will never know. And each piece of art could be its own book. I yeah. mean, if you think about opening up everything that it is tied to. Yeah, there, it looks like just a human figure on a wall, but that's a human figure with a name that's part of a mythological ancestry that's, that's part of a much bigger story. And when I look at it, I, just, I see an image. And, uh, you know, I've been out with people from Hopi and people from Zuni who, who look at this and say, this may look unique to you. This may look like something you don't understand. But for me, these are symbols that I grew up with. These are part of my ancestry. This isn't some exotic panel of rock art from an ancient people who have no connection to now. These are family lines. And so, you know, as a white guy looking at this stuff, I'm going, okay, well, this is part, 
I'm not part of this ancestry, but this ancestry is part of my life. It surrounds me. I'm aware of it. I'm aware of all these eyes in the rock watching time pass. And to not engage with it almost seems insulting uh, because it's a major part of our lives here, whether we see it or not, just to know you're surrounded, that it's all around us right now. All right, we're going to start to open it up to listener questions. Scott Vogt of Grand Junction says... Uh, Craig, we're hoping you might have an idea of what a symbol means. In our wanderings, we've come across squares made of dots pecked into the stone. In some places, like Nine Mile Canyon, they're small. For example, four rows by four columns. In the canyon behind the Winchester panels, it is large. We counted a square made up of dots 20 by 20. Any ideas? None. None. <laughs> I, 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 so often I look at rock art and, and just go, I can't know what this is. And even if I talk to direct ancestors, when it gets down to specific symbols, there are some uh, that are 800 or 1,000 years old where I've gone out with uh, a, a Hopi priest and we've talked about it. He said, here's a symbol for... This is the Squash Blossom clan. This is the Backstrap clan. Uh, but then I said, what about these other older symbols? And he said the same thing. He just went, ah, that's too far back. Mm. You know, the stories, a lot of stories have been lost since then. And so most of the images I look at, I just, I say, yeah, this could be so many things. And it probably was. You probably would have gotten different answers. Even then? Yeah, even oh. then. I mean, similarly, Dave Clapp of Fruta says, do you think there's any chance of finding the equivalent of a Rosetta Stone to allow for translation of some rock art's meaning? Dave Clapp should probably write, like, good science fiction. Well, <laughs> if I can just tag on to that, there are some sites um, that have a lot of the key elements. There's a site here in Colorado, which I'm not going to say where it is, but it's got probably 20 of the major iconographic figures that you see all over the four corners, and they're all compressed in this one place. And that might be the Rosetta Stone, except so much time has passed that nobody would know. Uh -huh. But I can look at certain panels and go, wow, there's a lot here that I see everywhere. So this could be a Rosetta Stone for the stories that were told, for the mythology, but I don't know what it is. Is rock art in any jeopardy? I mean, we've talked about the potential for vandalism or over love, overuse, overappreciation in touching it. Uh, is there any reason to believe that development or highways or expansions threaten it? Oh, certainly. Oh. There, there are many, many cases. Uh, I was at a site not too long ago in outside of Prescott, Arizona, where there are boulders that are aligned with sunrise, uh, so astronomical alignments that land on petroglyphs. And there was a development that happened there, a housing development, and they kept the boulders except they moved them to some other place. Oh. And so that alignment isn't there anymore. Oh. Uh, so there's plenty of that. Uh, I mean, there are protections out there, but... But things get moved, things get vandalized. Um, 
rock art is stolen, chipped off of rocks and taken. So because it's in one place, it's so sensitive to many people coming to that place, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's you know a bulldozer blading the ground or it's somebody coming with chalk to outline it to be seen better. You know, whatever it is, it's kind of defenseless there. Hmm. And it's so easy to damage these places or to realign them so they don't matter in the way that they used to. If I were counting, you know, errands that I had completed on a list, or if I was noting something that happened in my day with pen and paper, I wouldn't call that art. You know, I'd yeah. call that maybe stenography, for yeah. instance. Is it fair to call all rock art art, or is some of it paperwork? Oh, uh, I think there's a lot of paperwork out there. I think calling it art is, is just, that's the biggest blanket word. Uh -huh. And some of it, if you went back and you would say, oh, this is artful, or this is art, they, they would say, no, I'm just, I'm recording the number of days that this has been happening and yeah. we're keeping track of it. And like you said, it, it's paperwork. And, and I think we're elevating it. We're saying, oh, it's ancient, therefore it's mystical, <laughs> therefore it's art. But then I think the definition of art for me is something that you create with style that, that sends the viewer into you know, a thousand different possibilities. And that to me is what art is, is something that excites the imagination and, and creates ideas in your head, which is what this does. So basic, yeah, it's art, I think. It's done beautifully. And it's not always done beautifully. Sometimes it's done very roughly. Oh. Uh, and, and it stands out where you're going, wow, did, was that a child who was making that or somebody who was in a hurry? Or, or someone who has no artistic talent like me. <laughs> you know? It, there are plenty of people who are pecking on rocks who... Right. Who, oh, that's a fun thing to think about. Uh, ungifted ancient people. Right. <laughs> which, which there are plenty of all uh -huh. the time. Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you had me doing rock art, it would be rough and strange. <laughs> but that would be my story. There's more from adventurer and author Craig Childs when Colorado Matters continues. We'll discuss rock art in hard-to-reach places. How did the artists reach them? I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Turn the Page, recorded in Grand Junction from CPR News and KRCC. Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell, make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. From the bottom, now we're here. That's part of the joy of Started listening to music, bottom, and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Yes. Five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast, Music Blocks, is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen.
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We read together for our series Turn the Page, and our latest pick comes from nature writer Craig Childs of Norwood, Colorado. He has written Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau. It's about the ancient symbols that endure on cliffs, canyons, and caves. Let's get back to our discussion and questions from our audience at the Moss Performing Arts Center on the campus of Colorado Mesa University. Lucia Kay of Grand Junction wonders how rock art was done in such high places. Uh, because, Craig, you write in the book that you often need rope to get to some of these spots. Yeah. Yeah, there... Also, that is a brilliant question, Lucia. I'm going to mark that under, I wish I had thought of it. <laughs> well, you, you sit out there looking up at a cliff face and there... There are a hundred figures, 80 feet above you. And that's the question you're asking, is how is this possible? And some of them I've noticed, there's a ledge that fell out. So there used to be a way up there. Oh, I see. So the geology has changed The rock has changed, okay. But then some of them, clearly they were floating when they made it. They were, there's no no (laughs) other way up there. Wait, what do you mean though? What do you mean? (laughs) I, I think that they were, they built scaffolding. Or in some places, they took a tree. You know, they chopped down a, f- a hundred-foot tree, notched it with as a ladder, and leaned it against the wall. And I just imagine somebody climbing to the tip of that tree, and just with their sandals wrapped around the top of it, were up pecking a rock above them. Now, is this scientifically backed up, or this is your imagination? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, it's it's my imagination, but. I know that in Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, they carried 200,000 trees of that size from the mountains 40 or 60 miles down into the desert for architecture, for building. Uh-huh. So It's not a stretch by any means. It's not a stretch to imagine that they'd carry one uh, five miles to lean it up against a cliff. And when you see them all in a line way up high, you know that, oh, they had something that reached that line and then they moved it along. So you can see that there was a tree or they built scaffolding here, that hmm. they meant this to be seen. And, they, and sometimes these figures up high are very large, so they knew that we want to project down this canyon. We want to have this be seen for some distance. It really makes me think of ancient billboard artists or like yeah. <laughs> sign posters, yeah, you paper hangers. You would have walked by a thousand years ago and seen them up there going, oh yeah, they're the billboard guys there. Yeah, right. <laughs> I guess I have to buy Sanka. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. We spoke a little bit about how astronomical phenomena might inspire art to be similar around the globe, but Richard Allward in Grand Junction wonders beyond that if you see similarities between art in our region and elsewhere around the continent or the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of the same symbols. Uh, a friend of mine has been doing archaeology work in Saudi Arabia the last few weeks and, uh, and posting pictures of rock art on the same kind of sandstone that's here. And if you showed it to me and said, this is in Utah, I would have said, oh, yeah, those are the same figures. Yeah, that's a definitely a Utah panel. Wow. Uh, 
you see the same kinds of human-like figures, spirals. Spirals are everywhere, and often they're astronomically aligned. The Druids were doing spirals that had sun coming down shafts in these structures and landing in the spirals, much the same way that sun lands on spirals at certain times of the year all over the Southwest. It seems like at the same point in human development, the, the early Neolithic, just getting into agriculture, Rock art just explodes wherever that is in the world. It makes me feel connected. Yeah, we're all, we've all gone through this stage somewhere in our ancestry. And that's why, you know, I look at our ancestry. We can go back to some place in the world and find the rock art, the early Neolithic rock art of our people. Huh. And it will, it will have some of the same imagery. That's a lovely thing to say because it occurs to me then that rock art is not othering, it's not that culture over there. It is something that unites us, though it may be differently placed. Yeah, uh -huh. it's very human. This is, is a very outdoor project because obviously you are climbing rocks and scaling them. Was the pandemic beneficial in that way? Mm, yes, this book wouldn't have happened if the pandemic hadn't happened. Uh, it, was, it was because I had time. And the I, outdoors were safe. Yeah, yeah, that was, I, I mean, from, from where we live in Southwest Colorado, you just head out into the canyons and start looking, and I had the time to do it. So I proposed the book kind of early in the pandemic and said, you know, I'm finding that I'm moving in a way that I, I'm starting to get back into the rock art world. I'm moving along their paths. Uh, and I think I've got the time to do this because this, so much of this book was about time, about sitting for days, watching the light go across a panel, watching sunrise, watch the whole day go by, watch the sunset and see the stars come out. And what does it look like at night? What does it look like in October? What does it look like in December? You know, go back to these places over and over again and the, the pandemic kind of helped with that because everything else of mine got canceled. Mm -hmm. You are so much more patient than I am. <laughs> like the notion of sitting in one place and waiting for the sun to change <laughs> makes me want to go and get a cocktail. I... <laughs> well, bring it back and then sit oh, there. <laughs> oh, A thermos. A flask. Oh, yeah. I like a thermos. <laughs> That's my kind of vessel, Craig. Are, are you a patient person? I don't think so. Huh. <laughs> but I'm patient when I want to see something. When I, when, when I know that, that I'm going to learn a lot by sitting here for six days in this one place. You know, I will get up and walk around, but I, I, I'll be right there in that zone and... And when you start to see the incremental change, it's no longer about patience because you're kind of, you're going, okay, well, what's going to happen next? Where oh, it's a soap opera go? unfolding. Yes, yeah. it is. And it literally is a soap opera unfolding because the light is filling different figures at different times. And if you watch a panel, it's lighting up in certain ways that, that images are receding as others are coming out. And some of them that are astronomically oriented, you can see, oh, this is a story being told on the rock where the light is landing. So you're seeing that soap opera actually happening in front of huh. you. So am I patient or am I just 
Easily I, entertained. Yes. Uh-huh. That would be it. <laughs> we have that in common. Okay, good. The final part of our conversation with Craig Childs, author of Tracing Time After a Break. I put him on the spot and have him read from his nature journal. Plus, alien myths. This is Turn the Page with Colorado Matters from CPR News. As days get shorter and nights get cooler, thousands of large, hairy spiders march across the eastern plains, especially near La Junta. It's been called a tarantula migration, but only males go on the move. They spend their first several years close to the home burrow. When they're ready to mate, they develop very long legs to walk half a mile a day in search of females. When he finds a female's burrow, the male slaps the ground. It's a gamble. If she's not receptive, the much larger female tarantula could eat him. Even if the mating is successful, the male is pretty much done for. Each one dies after it fulfills its reproductive mission. While his lifespan is limited to seven or eight years, the female tarantula lives up to 20. Maybe you fear spiders, but remember, a tarantula is much more afraid of you, and its venom results only in mild effects. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz in Denver. Across the Colorado Plateau, rock faces bear the symbols of those who came before us. The final part of my conversation now with Craig Childs, author of Tracing Time. We spoke in front of a live audience in Grand Junction for our reading series, Turn the Page. Jen B. in Grand Junction says, tell us about your writing practice and whether your method has changed over time. My writing practice. Well, it's to uh, I carry something to write on. <laughs> You've just taken a small notebook out of your back pocket. Yeah, which actually I lost out of a hole in my back pocket yesterday up on Grand Mesa. But you retrieved it. And, and walked back and found it. Oh, wow. Uh, Read us some of your writing. Oh, my Can God. You, would you do that? <laughs> Talk it's, about putting you on the spot. Yeah, so I don't know what... Um, uh, just on the page that I opened, which is uh, here, you can feel it. It's very sandy. Oh, it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he says four o'clock... The movie starts, front row seats. This is a rock art panel. So the movie starting means at four o'clock the light, the light comes on. Uh, and it's also water stained, so I can't quite read it. <laughs> Some of these images are starting to pop and they're becoming three-dimensional. You have to look away from the movie screen now and then from a high point, seeing bright cloud-shaped cliffs in the distance, winter skeletons of cottonwood trees, russet tamarisk, Black widow webs glimmer along the cliff bottom. The older petroglyphs begin to rise out of the rock as if hesitant to get up and move, but showing themselves where they'd been invisible an hour before. Oh. Were you always... Oh. <laughs> Craig Childs, the unpublished works. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I just, I'm scribbling all the time out there. And is that an evolution? Were you always this way? Or is that something you've come to document? Yeah, I've always been doing this more over the last 
20 years, more over the last 10, more over the last five. It, I think I'm going to explode uh, <laughs> because there's so much to write down. Hmm. So how I do this is I, I'm out in the field scribbling and then I have another journal with me that I sit down with later and I open it and I use these lines or I use bullet points from in here and then write it in the bigger journal. More formally. Yeah, and so I think it out more. I used to do have big journals with art in them. I did a lot of sketches, but that's before I had children or a life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's when I was just in the desert and that's all I did. Uh, so now it's more just catching the light and going, okay, that's what that light is like and here's where the wind is coming from and, mm. and this is what the ground sounds like and, and you're constantly thinking in words. Uh, you know, as a writer, it, the words are just tumbling around in my head and if they tumble for too long, I got to get a journal out and write it down. It's funny how often you use words that apply to both words, language, and rocks. Tumble. Mm. It occurs to me that this is your rock art, maybe. Yeah, uh-huh. it is. Why I wouldn't call it art. <laughs> it's paperwork. <laughs> Published paperwork, but okay. I'm loath to even go there because the ancient aliens thing is so beyond the pale. Um, there has been a narrative that anything exceptional on Earth has to be aliens. It's actually quite a racist thing because yeah, it, 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 it deems earlier people incapable of marvels. Yeah. But do you face questions about whether other species might have been involved in these sorts of things? Oh, yeah. Is, I, I have yeah. dear friends who, who might be listening. I should be careful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who, who say, yeah, this is aliens. And I, I think it, it is really part of that we look to the past and think anybody in the past isn't as advanced as we are uh -huh. because we're here now and everything's about now. And I look at this rock art and I go, yeah, if it was aliens, um, this looks really human for aliens. <laughs> They're really trying to be human here. I think it's just a tendency of ours to say anything from the past is primitive because it's primal, it's closer to the prime. But actually, it's just us. I mean, 2,000 years ago was nothing. Technologically, sure, but as humans, we're, we're still the same creatures. We still have the same level of creativity and, and emotions and, and our artistry. Some people have it, some people don't. You can mm -hmm. see it on the rocks. You know, are you going to say that, oh, those were aliens who didn't know how to do it and, and they made poor rock art? You know, it's just... It doesn't make, I, need, I would need a lot more evidence uh -huh. uh, because when I look at it, I see, oh, this is a continuum. I can see 5,000 years of styles developing here. So if these were aliens, they were here for 5,000 years trying to, to match <laughs> human styles on the rock. If you ran across a looter, would you punch them in the face? No, no. I'd... I'd have a conversation, I, and I've spent a fair amount of time with people who've looted, I've, uh, with pot hunters. Oh, um, that's right. You wrote a book about yeah. folks who find the market for all this. Yeah, and I, I actually understand what they're doing, I, and I think we all do. We, you want to know what's in the ground, and if you grew up with a shovel going out on weekends with your family digging to find some fascinating thing, 
it makes sense, I would more have the conversation go, huh, that's interesting that you're doing this. What do you think about it all disappearing? What do you think about this being the last of it? There's, there's not going to be any left if we keep doing this. I, it's more the conversation that I want. I don't feel so much anger toward them as just like, I don't think you're seeing the full picture of what ancestry means on the ground. That these are, every potsherd, every arrowhead is part of a story. And I, I understand picking it up and wanting to have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it tells a story there in your hand. Um, I would just step back and say, okay, well, how many of those are going to disappear? And what's this going to look like? Because I've seen so many sites that had plenty of stone material, plenty of uh, pot sherds, and then over 20, 30 years just gone blank. And I've seen the same with archaeological crews going in where everything's gone. And I go, wow, you just took a plug out of history hmm. and carried it away. And now anybody walking across this place will go, oh, nothing happened here. Where a whole history happened there. To wrap up, I'd like to hone in on one sentence about you as a Western adventurer. You write in the book, Tracing Time. Though I seek solitude, I've never believed I was alone. Yeah. Yeah, you aren't alone here, even in the deepest country. No matter how hard it is to get to and you think nobody's been here for centuries, every rock hill out here, every place has had people, had people over thousands of years coming back again and again. And the idea that you were first or that you were alone, I think is a misnomer. In this landscape, you're surrounded by people even if they're not here, they've been here for so long that you can never really be alone in this place. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me, Ryan. Explorer and author Craig Childs. His new book is Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau. Our next turn the page takes place in February. I'll announce our pick closer to that time. Special thanks to producer Carla Jimenez, audio producer Tyler Bender, engineer Ronald Zastro, and Brittany Wurgis from our events team. Thanks as well to the crew at the Moss Performing Arts Center at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.